All right. Uh, Gour's Numerical Sayings, Part 2. An exciting title, if ever there were one. So, we have been looking at chapter 30, verses 1 through 9, was the introduction to Agur's preliminary confession and prayers. So in verses 1 to 6, he gave us an epistemological confession. He talks about the fact that he doesn't have knowledge apart from divine revelation. And he talks about God and the Son of God. And so we have there a pointer to the doctrine of the Trinity. And we also have, when we get to verses 7 through 9, we have an existential prayer. A prayer that God would keep lies and liars away and keep poverty and riches away, but allow rather for there to be sufficient resources for the duties at hand. We get to verses 10 to 31, and really all the way through 33, and we're kind of at the, the main body. The last two verses are a conclusion, but, but there are seven numerical sayings, and the, the first group is verses 10 through 16. There's the idea of the curse of the slandered slave, so don't slander a slave, don't slander an employee to his master, a official to the king, any of that. The idea um, that that brings curse, and that we we don't uh, we don't take seriously curses. We don't take seriously the idea that if a person curses you, that has power. We like kind of laugh at that as though it's like magic or something, and then we forget that magic is a real thing. Magic's a real thing. Or we think it's this joke thing. We think it's a thing in movies. We think Harry Potter and all that, and so we just kind of go, "This is not a thing that we need to really worry about." Witches are real. Mediums are real. Diviners are real. They commune with the powers of demons. Demons are real. Curses are a real thing. When you call a curse, you're calling for some sort of demonic power if you're basing it off of something else. And if you're calling to God to curse, you're asking through prayer for God to bring a curse. Curses are real. And so... If we do something that causes someone to curse us and it's a just curse, there's a real danger of us receiving curse. So part of what we need to pray for is for God to relieve curse from us. Christ took the curse for us. And so by the merits of Christ, curses can be broken. Multi-generational curses can be broken. The law of God has curses inside of it itself. The, the fifth commandment um, connects us to prior generations. It has blessings across time. And, and we have the, the third commandment with the idea that uh, those who take his name will not be held guiltless. We have the idea of those who break the commandments are cursed for the third and fourth generation. And we have the blessing to the thousandth, south, thousandth? South, thousandth, man, thousandth generation. And so the blessing to the thousandth generation is a, uh, a real thing too. And so we, we don't take blessings as highly as we should, in part because we don't take curses as highly as we should. And so one of the glorious things, I've said this before, the fact that I get to bless you in two services and to put my hands over you to be able to call for the blessing of God upon you is a powerful and great and glorious thing. And it's one of the privileges of leading a family in family worship, getting to do that regularly. So I encourage all of you men to bless your families, to Raise your hands over them and bless them when you do family worship as a closing way to end. It's calling it's a prayer and a fitting end to marking off the time. And so the idea of blessing and cursing. So cursing 
is a real concern, and we should pray against curses, pray for the removal of them, seek to repent of sins that bring curse. And so, I'm going to pause right now. I'm just going to pray for that for us all. Father, I ask that you would remove curses from us. We repent of our sins. There are many sins that we've committed. We deserve curse. And Father, we know that Christ has paid for all of our sins. And he's taken curse for us. And we ask that you would free us from curses. That you would remove them from us. We ask that you would bless us. We ask that you'd protect us from demonic powers. That you would remove demonic forces from us as individuals, as households, as a church. That the homes that we dwell in, that the places that we work, at the place we assemble, that you would protect us from demonic power and from curse. And we ask that you would bless us, that you would place over us angelic guard, and that Christ's reign would be manifest in our midst, and the blessings of it enjoyed. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, verse 11 is the first saying. It's about the greedy generation, and it warns us about all of these problems, and we see a lot of them in sort of the, you know, the throwing off of care about the prior generations and a lawful authority, the self-righteousness, the idea of looking in lofty and arrogant ways to tasks that are beyond them as opposed to governing themselves well, and the idea of consuming the poor and using their power to manipulate and use the poor and cause great woe for the poor. And we talked about how that often manifests itself in enviousness, covetousness, that, that socialization of institutions and, and industry is one of the ways that manifests itself in the social justice movement in our time uh, is a great example of that. Um, the idea of the leech. We talked about the leech's two daughters give and her sister give, right? And so this idea of people who don't want to be reciprocal blessings, don't want to help, don't want to give back, they will take, 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 demand, 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 demand and to always act like the other person owes them something. And so there's a great danger there, both for individuals and households and, and for social orders in terms of churches and states, the way that those can be robbed of their vitality by that. Um, saying three, talked about the four insatiable things, the grave, the womb, the earth, and fire. And so the idea of those things, how they related, so the grave and the barren womb, the barren womb fails to give life, the grave takes life. The earth takes water, the fire consumes the things that are dry and um, requires water to put out. You know, and so you have sort of this, this set of things in the relationship of those we talked about. When we get to the second group, this is the new part. So here, the numerical sayings here. And the second group is about God's social order. The first group is about renouncing covetousness. And that relates to the social order as well. But here, there's sort of a concern about rebellion. So covetousness is destructive to the social order. It destroys all the institutions and working together. Rebelliousness also destroys the social institutions and the ability to work together. And so the focus here is on avoiding rebellion. And remember, chapter 30 is wisdom for kings. So... How, how why, why so much focus on this for a king? For the king, like, what is he covetous of? The, covetous, the, the king's going to be a rich guy. He's going to be a really rich guy, a powerful guy in the land. What's he covetous of? Well, if you're familiar at all with the story of Naboth's vineyard, 
one of the ways that kings can be covetous is eminent domain. It's a reason of the state. Here, I need to take this land. The taking, the not respecting of private property. If kings don't respect property, if kings don't respect rights, nobody respects the crown rights of the king. So kings, by being very careful about the rights of the people under them, can preserve their authority. And covetousness in the king breeds covetousness throughout. And it destroys respect for the rights of a king. Now, a king can be grasping for more power, seeking to undermine lawful limits of power, seeking to conquer other lands. Kings that are emperors desiring to conquer free peoples and to put them under his heel without just cause, who look for any excuse to be able to go to war. Those kings encourage rebellion and a disrespect for the rights of authority. If kings don't respect lesser authorities and the rights of those lesser jurisdictions, they undermine their own power. And if kings are incompetent, slothful, cowardly, those are things that undermine a king. So we look at that. The idea of maintaining God's social order. So renouncing a rebellious spirit. Verse 17, The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. One of my favorite things that Solomon ever did is when Bathsheba comes to Solomon to meet him in his throne room, his mother. He gets off of his throne, and he bows down in front of her. That right there, him honoring his mother, was an act of great wisdom that exemplifies the honor that he wants to encourage throughout all of his land. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. So we have mocking of the father, the the rebellion, the taking away of honor. We have the scorning of obedience rather than obeying. These things bring curse. The curse is put forward as, first of all, death. Right? Typically, ravens and young eagles don't pluck the eyes out of living people. They typically don't eat the body parts of living people. There's death. And it's a cursed death. The ravens of the valley will pick it out. The young eagles will eat it. The eye. The eye that mocks his father and the eye that that scorns obedience to his mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. So this points to death and it's death. It's a cursed death. It's not having burial. You read through the kings. The good kings, they die. They get buried with their fathers no stories about animals eating their bodies. Bad kings, bad queen, Jezebel. Animals eat their bodies. They don't get buried with their fathers. Now what is this saying? Is this saying, therefore, they can't be resurrected? No. 
right? The body, God can pull together the molecular matter, make you a body. He doesn't need that. But there's an honoring of the body as the temple of the person's spirit and as that which held the image of God, which is the spirit, and as a honoring pointing forward to the resurrection, burial. So burial is a part of honor and it's a part of having a good memory and a good name that dwells in the land for generations. Some people response is, I don't care what people say about me when I'm dead, I'll be dead. That is not a Christian attitude. You should desire that your name be a blessing after your death. You should desire that people remember you as an encouragement to godliness. You should desire that you are as an example encourage greater godliness in the future. We call upon names of saints who are dead not to pray to them not to pray by their merits but to remember the work they've done. If I say names like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Owen, if I talk to you about those men that resisted Charles I and lopped off his head, if I talk to you about reformers and pre-reformers who were burned at the stake, if I say Tyndale, if I say Huss, many of these names draw to mind remembrances that are a blessing. There are figures in the scriptures to do the same. You want your name to be a word that brings to mind the honor of the Lord and an example that encourages. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. These unclean carrion birds will bring dishonor on those who mock where they should give honor and scorn obedience where they ought to bend the knee. So that's the introduction to the section. So we get to saying four. We have four ways of wonder and one way of woe. There are three things which are too wonderful for me. Yes, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, or the heart of the sea. The way of a ship in the heart of the sea. And the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. So these things, these things are wonderful. They are things that he doesn't quite understand. The idea here is that there is an expression of freedom within limits. And there's a gaining of traction in a way that is not strictly explainable from a human perspective. We are inclined to think that because we have Newton's Principiae of Physics, and because we have the theory of relativity from Einstein, and because we have quantum mechanics, things are not a wonder to us. 
we've figured it out. We pretty much know how things work. But it's a joke. We don't. Physicists and aerospace engineers don't even agree about how wing foils work. So look it up. Have fun. Check it out. Find some debates about how airfoils work on airplanes. So I've chosen a couple of ways to explain things and to intentionally express to you that I have not explained the other side on this. I've chosen some of the most commonly used ways of explaining some of these things and also want to freely point out to you that this is not universally agreed upon. Okay, so we get to this and we look at the way of an eagle in the air. The way of an eagle in the air. And remember, we have two things here. We have the idea of freedom within boundaries and structure and we also have the idea of how does this thing gain traction? So think about this for just a second. An eagle gets traction in the sky. An eagle gains traction in the air. It is able to swim through the air. That power to leave the ground, to take flight, and to remain in air, apparently effortlessly, for long periods of time. Watched an interesting video about a month ago, thinking about this. I've been thinking about this one for a while. Of a eagle that was just flying in a hurricane. Just not even moving its wings. Just there for a long time. The only movements that were recordable were marginal movements of feathers on the very ends of them to be able to manipulate the air around it. Just using the hurricane for thrust. Watched an eagle fly about 150 miles per hour over a lake on a perfectly calm day. Doesn't seem to be going down, just seems to be gliding almost straight. Right? You can find some pretty amazing images of eagles. Imagine you live in a place where it's more wild. Imagine you live in ancient Israel. And there are more eagles. You see them more often. There are no airplanes, and you don't quite yet have the published Principii or theory of relativity or quantum mechanics. And so you watch these things and you go, well, you watch them now, you still go, well. The way of an eagle in the air. The air here, by the way, we, we then go to the land, right, with the rock, and we go to a sea. This is pointing to the tripartite creation, right? The heavens and the earth and the seas and the waters that are under the earth. Right, here's over and over again that thing. So here are things that are there. The eagle gaining traction to make progress in the air. So here's the common way of explaining how an eagle takes flight. Okay, so first of all, basically, light creature, hollow bones, lots of muscle per body weight, magnificent feather array, something like 7,500 feathers per average eagle. Figure how many of them they have to pluck the feathers from to get an average, right? Three is sufficient. So you have a lot of feathers is the mass hollow bones, a lot of muscle in terms of the makeup of the body. So the ability to get lift, sufficient lift compared to the mass to be able to take flight. Right? You're trying to get into a gliding position. So you have manual thrust to get into the air and then you're trying to deal with some sort of a gliding principle. Now, the normal way that the way that wings work is explained is what's called the Bernoulli principle. Okay, and the Bernoulli principle is this. The thrust that's generated 
allows for airflow ultimately to go over the wings sufficiently so that the air that goes over the wings, not the air that goes under the wings, is the thing that creates the force for lift. Now, the idea of the air going under and being diverted as a type of thrust is sort of the way you commonly think about things. But the Bernoulli principle is supposed to be this idea that as air moves faster, it reduces air pressure. And so a sort of suction, lift, occurs over the wing. Okay, now go look up why that's wrong. Okay, so you can find people who say that, and you can find a different theory. There are at least three major theories that I can find being taught right now in engineering schools about how lift works. Okay, that's one of them. They all contradict each other. They have no idea. They don't know. The best thing they can do is make smoke go through a fan and try to watch the pattern of the smoke. We are so advanced that we can watch smoke flow over wings. This is, this is the best we can do. We think we can explain it all? We, we have no idea. We have no idea. There is a recent redesign that was done on propellers and on wings. And the theory right now is that we can get about 120% more thrust out of this new propeller design with the same energy. And that these wings should allow about 20% reduction in the use of energy necessary to push the same thing. Right, so the two of those, transportation costs should drop dramatically. Why haven't they been done yet? Because nobody's figured out how to produce these things in an efficient way. Right, so it's just, we're just trying to figure stuff out all over the place. And we act like we know how to do so much more than we do. This thing is too wonderful for me. And I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air. How about a serpent on a rock? All right. You want to have a good time? Try to see if you can find any physicist who can explain to you how sidewinders move. Okay, you have to give a grand old time. Look this up online. Try to figure it out. In, I can't remember the name. There's some name for studiers of snakes. Okay, but apparently it is an axiomatic truth amongst the studiers of snakes that if you want to go mad, study sidewinders. So this idea that the serpent on the rock, how does the serpent get traction to make progress on the earth? read a number of interesting theories about the secretion of fat out of the bottoms of snakes, the bottom portion, to be able to create movement. You've seen that with slugs. You have the secretion of some sort of a ooze type of material. It makes Ninja Turtles. And so when you look at the movement of snakes, you go to page four here, there are four categories of movement that are generally talked about. The simplest is called rectilinear, sort of an inchworm movement where the snake like inches up on itself. There's lateral undulation, which is sort of a side-to-side. -side. And this is something you've probably seen where it looks as though it's shifting the weight onto the forward portion. So you have the, the head of the snake sort of moving up, and then it sort of angles down like it has an elbow where its head's coming up. And it like uses that as a lever to then like sort of move up the next port. You ever seen that? So that's that uh, lateral undulation. The concertina, which is where you see them going side-to-side -side and then kind of projecting off of a side platform as a lever. So there's this, this sort of uh, 
you can look up these terms. You can watch videos of each of the type of movement if you want to see how they look. Okay, but you can see this idea of the concertina, which is more of a, uh, it sort of, it takes in a mixture of the rectilinear and the later, lateral undulation and makes it an even more complex one that allows for more movement. And then you can take a look at the sidewinder. Now, none of these take into account the fact that snakes seem to be able to swim in sand in often in many scenarios, especially in desert environments. Now, scientists have been trying to figure out how to be able to see how these guys swim through sand. So what they did in a laboratory environment is they took little grains of glass to try to light them up, and they aerate them to try to produce the same effect as, as sand dunes and air passing through the sand to make it so that can be there so they can observe it. And so far, they've figured out that the snakes do move through the glass. So, I mean, have a good time. Look it up. Check it out. Lots of videos of people trying to figure out how snakes are moving around. We think we've figured all this stuff out. We have names for some of the types of movements. Uh, sand swimming didn't have a name. I'm just going to call it sand swimming. Does that work for everybody? Sand swimming. That's the fifth type of movement. Sand swimming. And then there's snakes that swim. There's also that. So we think we have it all figured out. There are three things that are too wonderful for me. Yes, four, which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the air. The way of a serpent on a rock. These are shockingly complex creatures that use mechanisms that are structures that allow for them to do very complex movements. The rules of the created order that God upholds in them and in their environment allow for them following those principles, using these things, using the innate structures of intuition within them to be able to do remarkable things. The eagle did not get a flight training course. No manual. Didn't have a test. No government agency involved at all. Flying just fine. Serpent. We've tried to replicate the movement of serpents. We've created robots that are supposed to sort of copy the motion. We can't really move the same way, but we have found out ways to make these robots move. It's just not the same way that the snakes move. There are sort of some similarities. The robots are similar shape to the snakes, and we can get them to move by having a bunch of gyro engines in them and making them do some stuff to move. Not the same as a snake. There are some similarities. Wave a serpent on a rock. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea, or the heart of the sea. The heart of the sea. If you were talking about a ship that's on the coastline, you might be excused for thinking that you're talking about here oars, which by themselves are fairly interesting. The idea of gaining traction in water to be able to pull yourself is pretty interesting. But in the heart of the sea, these things are, they stopped rowing a while ago. These guys stopped rowing a while ago. In the heart of the sea, what's happening here is a rudder and sails. How does this thing gain traction in the sea? So if, you've, you know, if you think about it for five seconds, you think about a sail on a boat, and you think for a second, yeah, the wind blows that way, you put the, the sail that way, and it's going to catch the wind. That is not how they work. So you think it would work. That's not how they work. Go on YouTube. Watch some physicists talk about sailing. Just, just listen to them for a bit. 
look at any of the stuff about how, where, where do you place the sail to catch the wind. You do not make it so it's just, here's the biggest part of the sail facing the direction that the wind is blowing. That is not how it works. So the idea of a rudder being this small part of a ship that controls the direction, the idea of the way the sails work, the ability to navigate in the sea, and to manage plowing through the sea over moving hills. Right? This is the process that a sailor has to deal with. The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. You know, buoyancy, there's a lot of interesting ways of trying to deal with buoyancy and trying to deal with how does the, the balancing of that work, displacement. There's a lot of interesting things to study about each of these things. And the complexity of how all of these things work of them, the one that seems the least complex to me is, is the ship. It's the one that seems the least complex. And that one was made by men. But it uses two invisible things to gain traction and to move. The wind and the rudder that's hidden under the water. Those things, those things that are hidden, the traction, the source of traction is not known. Now, the, third, the fourth one we get to, the way of a man with a virgin. First, any man that has sought to gain the favor of a young woman understands that it is a rather mysterious process about how to gain traction in the heart of a young lady. You can have a good-looking, charming, honorable guy, skillful, has resources, station, wisdom, holiness, righteousness. She just doesn't like him. She doesn't like him. That can happen. The inner world of the human heart. How do you gain traction to make progress in the inner world of the human heart. Traction in the air, traction on the ground, traction in the sea, traction in the heart. These are all things that are processes that are mysterious to this onlooker in about 1000 BC. And despite all of the pompous proclamations of human psychology, are still not properly mapped out, better than airfoil. We don't have smoke there, by the way. Can't make any smoke move around in the human soul to try to figure out what's happening. The smoke doesn't go. Can't watch the movements. And we move from these, and what we get into is the adulterous woman seeks to satisfy her sexual desires, and treat them as nothing more than a hunger. She hides her sin, wipes her mouth, and she erases all evidence of it. She seeks to use sexuality to make progress and acts like it's not evil. This is pragmatism, hedonism, or nihilism. And rather than using lawful means and relying upon God to bless the lawful means, she uses her sexuality sinfully. So between all of these things, what's, what's the point? Right? What, what is the point of of all four of these examples that are wondrous and hard to understand 
And then we have the contrast with the adulterous woman. We don't know how things work. Don't pretend like we do. You want to be pragmatic? You want to do what works? How about listen to the instruction manual given by the guy who made the place? That's the basic point. That's the basic point of this text. Why are people harlots? Why do people sell out? Because they think they know how things work. And they think they can manipulate the game. They think they can improve their lives by not doing what God commands and doing something else. Don't pretend like you know how things work better than God. He gave you his law. It's an instruction manual for dominion. It's an instruction manual for how to make progress, how to gain traction in the heavens, in the earth, and the waters under the earth, and how to make traction in the hearts of men. Do not pretend like you know how these mysterious things work. Listen to God. So we are called to maintain holiness, unlike the adulteress. We are not to seek to gain traction for progress by unholy alliances. This gives the glory to God rather than the arm of the flesh. True freedom is in the prescribed way. Just as the eagle gains traction in the air, and the serpent on the rock, and the ship in the sea, and the man in the heart of a pure young woman, we see that a train has true freedom when it's going fast on the rails, not when it jumps off the rails and then can't move. True freedom is following the law of God. It is a highway of progress to us. Saying five, revolutionaries. We have four types of revolutionaries. For three things, the earth is perturbed. You could say unstable, the earth rages, the earth shakes, the earth breaks up. So for, for three things, the foundation of things, the earth is broken up, made unstable. Yes, for four, it cannot bear up. So here are the four. For a servant when he reigns, for a fool when he's filled with food, a hateful woman when she's married, and a maidservant who succeeds her mistress. These are all examples of someone who had covetousness and used rebellion to lead. So the servant, when he reigns, how does that happen? If you have a king, the ordinary expectation that his son is going to reign after him, if the servant reigns, the most likely way that occurred is through a coup. So this is used as a representation for the idea of somebody who's enacted a coup. When a servant reigns, he has to agitate for rebellion. He has to get people who support him. He has to make promises. And the people that are most attracted are the most mercenary. The ones that say, I'd like to rise, I will take your bribe, and I will work with you to remove this power to rise. Those that are disaffected are those that, rather than going through proper process, are likely to just hold it in and be disaffected. 
So when you build an alliance out of the disaffected and the mercenary, how stable do you think that alliance is? On the other hand, if you build an alliance out of the holy, out of the righteous, out of those who are concerned for wisdom and to see justice reign in the land, how stable is that alliance? So when you're frustrated and you want to see change, and rather than going through the lawful process, you simply seek to remove by agitation. It creates instability. The fool, when he reigns, the word fool there is nebal. It's not Ewil, it's not Kessel, it's not the ones we typically dealt with. This is only one other place in the book of Proverbs, I think it's back in chapter 17, it's nebal. This word is best translated as useless. A vain man, a useless man, a good for nothing, and a ball. Somebody who can't get anything done, totally incompetent. When an incompetent person has success, it creates instability. It encourages covetousness. It makes everybody think you can get by without, you know, without doing work. And so the idea of a fool, a useless guy who's filled with food, if you have a useless heir, don't let that guy be heir. You might have failed. You might have failed. You might have failed to lead. You might have failed to prepare the person. Okay, that's, that's, that's a failure. Don't double a failure by giving all the resources to a useless person. A useless person, when he's filled with food, it causes instability. The earth can't bear it. The hated or hateful woman. She's the hated woman. Why is she hated? Because she's hateful. Okay, you see both translations. She's the hated woman. She's hated because she's hateful. Full of hate. A hateful woman and a hated woman relates back to the idea of the contentious woman, the dripping woman, the woman who won't make a house livable. And so... Rebellion against the rule of a husband destroys the foundations of things. So, so the displacement of an authority by a coup, success for the useless person, the hateful woman in a marriage who destroys the household order, and the maidservant who, seeks, who succeeds her mistress. Right? A man commits adultery with a maidservant, replaces the wife, you have the example of Hagar with Sarah, uh, where Hagar starts to disdain Sarah. In Genesis 16, you have Hagar getting booted out with her son. As an example of an effort at that. So, the servant, the useless man, the hated woman, the maidservant that displaces, these are all things that cause instability, institutional instability. And these are examples of sort of people seeking to create instability. So think about systems that encourage this. Um, when a servant rules, when, when, the, when the official takes the place of the ruler, if you have a political system that encourages negative campaigning as opposed to talking about what ought to be done, that's going to encourage this kind of displacement process and loyalty and betrayal. Um, if you have a system that 
has the handing out of resources without regard to taking risks and being successful, you're going to have a tendency toward the useless person receiving money, government grants, government jobs that are unfireable, all that stuff, handouts. When you have a system that does not have people at fault for divorce, you have a rebellious, hateful woman, and she is able to use the divorce system to go after the man and to extract money out of him, even while she's rebellious. And also, you have the man trying to take revenge by trying to replace his wife. I mean, there's not a fault system. Right, so you have both of them there. The rebellious woman and the maidservant succeeding the mistress. These are all the things there. Our society is well established to encourage the destruction of order. We don't, we more and more undermine um, a system where there's an encouragement to have discussion about what ought to occur because of the centralization of things in the mass media format and the demagogic methodology of a widespread democracy as opposed to having representatives debate about things in a sort of public way. We have a system where money is transferred around by the government more and more and more, which encourages fools to be fat and happy. And we have destroyed the mechanisms for the enforcement of the marriage covenant. So our society is tearing apart all of these things that are stabilizers. Saying six. So being that case that we see all of these things in our society, what can we do to increase our capability to exercise dominion? Saying six is four force multipliers. Four for force multipliers. So verses 24 to 28. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. Now, exceedingly wise is not quite the right translation. It's really this. But they teach the wise men. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they teach the wise men. What do they teach the wise men? The ants are people not strong. There's a weakness. Yet they prepare their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a feeble folk if they make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king if they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with his hands and it is in king's palaces. So these are lessons for the wise and how the weak can become strong and how the weak can conquer. That's the idea here. So first of all, the ants. Physical weakness. When you find yourself, that we all know, ants are very strong for their size. That's fine. They're still really weak. Still really weak. They are people that are not strong. Yet they prepare their food in the summer. They are physically weak. They are a weak group. But they are diligent to make use of opportunities to get resources. They are diligent to make use of opportunities to get resources. And resource accumulation and deployment increases strength. That's the lesson there. If you're weak, diligently seek to accumulate resources. 
Protestants have been well known for this as merchants. Protestants have been well known for being businessmen. Protestants are well known with a work ethic. There's a German economist named Max Weber who wrote Protestantism and the Spirit of Capitalism. And there, what he tries to communicate is that Protestantism in general encourages capitalism, but that Puritanism above everything else encouraged capitalism. In the process of efficient production and the management of capital, and the pulling in of resources, delayed gratification, taking resources and deploying them, using them to accomplish good work, using them to be able to improve the condition, reducing consumption, not having conspicuous consumption, not just being luxuriant. That idea of dominion. This has been the frame of mind of Protestantism. If you're weak, diligently make use of opportunities to get resources. How about the rock badgers? Each of these, by the way, is a little thing that helps you to be able to memorize these better. And think about how easy these are to think about this. Everybody thinks about ants as diligent workers. That's like they show up in all sorts of cultural things that way. So if you memorize these animals, you're going to easily memorize the benefit that they get. That's all you got to do to remember these sayings and the benefit from them. So you go, okay, ant, work hard, get resources when there's opportunity. Rock badger, where do they stay? It's in the name. They're in rocks. They stay in rocks. Rocks are the places they hide. That's where they hide, in the rocks. The rock badgers. So the rock badgers, they are weak. Look for a picture of these. They look weak. Look at them, you're like, that's a weak creature. I don't know much about you, rock badger, but you look weak. You're going to look at these things, little furry things, they look weak. And they go in the rocks. Why do they go in the rocks? Because the rocks provide them with fortified positions. That's why. So, the weakness of individuals requires careful strengthening of position. You're in a bad position? Retreat. Find a better place. Change the situation. Improve your position. You're in a bad spot? Dig in. The hill right next to you? Retreat. Go to the hill. Dig in there. Right? You, you think about the situation. You're in a bad situation. Improve your situation. You're weak? Great. Change the circumstances. The Lord Jesus Christ says, if they persecute in one town, flee to the other. The other side of that, if you've got a strong enough ability to defend yourself, you have a Purim event, right? You defend yourself. And you take their stuff. Right? So that idea, when you're weak, you flee. When you're weak, you retreat. No stupid last stands. Last stands that are smart. Military doctrine of last stand is this. You retreat until you get to a place where you think you can make a stand where you can push back the enemy. And when you push them back, they are in a weaker position. They have been chasing you. You have been retreating to accumulate resources to reduce your chain, your supply chain, and to gather as you're retreating backwards support. And at the last stand, you push back, and there's a counteroffensive. A counteroffensive. When somebody has a failed attack on you, there's the opportunity for the counteroffensive. So what you have is the rock badger looks to strengthen the position against attack to allow attacks to be repulsed. So work diligently like the ant, 
and improve your situation with the resources. Ant, rock badger. Then locusts. Locusts don't have a king. Locusts don't have a king. Why do people like kings? Why do people like kings? They like kings because you got a guy. You got the guy, and you can circle up around that guy. You go, he might be a loser, but he's our loser. Circle around that guy. Get the wagons. Go around. That's the guy. What if you didn't have that? What if you just had the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in heaven? And you know he's not coming back until we win. And you go, I guess we better try to win. Would you have an increased concern for figuring out how to work with other people? So we're supposed to be like the locusts who don't have a king that's visible here. They lack a king, so that increases their need for seeking unified work. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. Notice that. They all advance in ranks. So what does that imply? That implies unity of command. They work together. Consolidation. They've come together. And they're on the offensive together. So first, the ant works diligently as opportunity arises to collect resources. The rock badger retreats to a stronger position and improves the position with the resources that one collects. When the defense is properly done, it is a last stand that is victorious and allows for a counteroffensive. And when the counteroffensive occurs, we all advance in ranks. Now the advance, what direction should it go? It should go towards a decisive point. And so we need to pick decisive points. A decisive point would include, for example, a king's palace or the capital city of the enemy. And so we should skillfully select those decisive points to take. Verse 28. The spider skillfully grasps with his hands, and it is in king's palaces. Remember elsewhere we were told that that man who is a skilled worker will not work in front of obscure men. He will work in front of kings. Skillful work gets you in front of important people. It puts you in decisive points. It gives you opportunity to have a mission to the magistrate. Skillful work, the gifting that God has given to you, makes a place for you at the tables of kings. Work diligently when there's opportunity to accumulate resources. Retreat to stronger points and improve your position like a rock badger. Like locusts in the counteroffensive, advanced in a unified way in ranks towards a common objective, skillfully chosen, like the king's palace. What we have here are ways to improve our position when we are weak. We, I feel, I feel, I feel pretty weak. This has instruction for me. I would encourage you to apply this instruction set and to think about how can we work that together. And the idea of how do we take things and improve our own position together? How do we have a plan for advance so we can advance together in ranks, seeking to be unified in that skillful work that 
we, like the spider, can be in king's palaces. Saying seven. Four reputation boosters. Guess what else is a force multiplier? Reputation. Men are valued by what others say of them. Men are valued by what others say of them. These are four things to improve reputation. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk. What man here would not want to be called majestic <laughs> in the way that you walk or stately in your stride? Any, any man here offended by that? Like, no, I prefer people will not call me that. I think you all would. So what are these things? A lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any. A greyhound, a male goat also, and a king whose troops are with him. Notice this one doesn't list out the qualities of each thing like the earlier one did. Saying six listed out the qualities. Saying seven lists out the quality of the first and then sort of leaves them blank. So what are these things? What the line is pretty clear. The line has boldness in the face of opposition or challenge. If you see another man face opposition or challenge and he's bold in the face of it and overcomes it, which of you has a lower opinion of him? Nobody, right? You all go, wow, that guy. All right, so man, it's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that too. I'm going to do, do it too. That's the response. Boldness encourages you to go, that guy is competent. The greyhound. What are greyhounds known for? Yeah. They're fast dogs. Greyhounds are fast. Now, if I, if I sit up here for a while and, and try to make an important decision, you're all staring at me. It takes me a long time. I him and haw. Does that get more respect? Or does a speedy decision get more respect a fast decision fast action gets respect you, you move fast you can get people to follow you that might follow you off of a ledge but they'll follow you speedy action that guy must know what he's doing speedy action you're bold and fast you basically become a social media influencer Just putting out videos all the time and saying things real confidently right? you need a lot of people to follow you contradict yourself every other day a lot of people who follow you. Boldness and speed get respect. The male goat. What does the male goat do? The male goat goes up on mountains. The male goat treads around where rocks and unstable terrain are. Jumps around. Think he's mocking you. You're just like, you can't do this, can you? I'm just hopping around up here. I'm fine. You can't get me. That's what rifles were made for. Men made rifles so they could shoot male goats that were bouncing around on rocks. They were like, I can't catch you, but I can shoot you. That's, the male goat is bouncing around showing competence. The bounding competence. Skillful maneuver. You see somebody's bold and fast and competent? That guy's a superstar in whatever sport it is he's playing. Right? That's, that's why men are drawn to star athletes. There's boldness and speed and competence. This is power. And then the king. A king whose troops are with him. 
First of all, notice it's troops, plural. There's an S. So having a number of followers increases respect. Troops, not, not jokers, not minstrels, not muses. Troops. The quality of the followers increases the respect for the leader. And they're with him. Unity. Unity increases respect for the leader. You walk into a place and there's a leader and everybody seems to disagree with the guy and think he's wrong and just talking about all the things that are wrong there and the disunity is on display. That does not increase the respect for the leader. Boldness, speed, competence, a large number of followers of high quality who are unified to work with you to accomplish a mission. If you manage your home and make it so it's like that, as the king, as you are the king of your home, if you do that, you will be known in the gates with the elders. You will increase your ability to exercise dominion. People will throw dominion at you. The, the more you succeed at things, the more people bring opportunities to you. It's an interesting effect that as you become prominent, as you become known, People just start bringing opportunities to you. One of the curses that's talked about in one of the prophets, and I can't remember where right now, it might be Isaiah, talks about that there's a time where in Israel, they'll have one guy who's just got a cloak and basically a staff, and people are just going to go, women will just throw themselves saying, look, just take me as a wife so that I can lose the shame of not having a husband. And they'll just have multiple women just saying, just do that to give me the shame. You don't have to provide for me. And so that's a curse. When things are really bad, somebody with a small amount of resources and the appearance of competence can get a ton of people to just come. When things are really good, you have to do a lot to rise above and be noticed. Things are really bad right now. Things are really bad right now. People don't understand really basic things, and you can list off several of them right now in your head. They don't get what's going on. They don't know what to do. Basic things like don't exceed your income in terms of what you spend are you know, things that people are just not really dealing with. If basic things about governing yourself that are not dealt with. If you can display boldness, speed, competence, a number of followers, having quality followers and having unity of followers in your house, then you have an exceptional place where from to lead. So let me point this out to you. You need to lead boldly your wife. Wives, you need to lead boldly your children. And you need to follow the bold leadership of husband. Speed of action can either be very foolish or it can be excellent based upon whether you have insight or not. So study, think, research things, figure things out. So you can make right decisions quickly, boldly. You make a bold decision real fast and then pull it back the next day, that does not look good. I'm not talking about that. How can you make bold decisions swiftly and have them be good and stick to them? By having deep insight, by having wisdom. Competence through work, skillful practice, so that you can bound about like the he-goat. 
that those things by themselves, being bold, being speedy, being competent, that will gather followers to you. If you're a single man, you want a wife, be bold, speedy, and competent pursuing a mission, you will get a wife. You have a wife, you've just increased your team by 100%. 100% growth, pretty good. Pretty good. Every time you have a child, you're increasing the number. You train them well, they will be like an arrow in the warrior's quiver. You increase the quality of those followers by discipling them, training them. You disciple them in the truth so there's unity. You talk to them about what to do. That is how you can do that in the home. And in the church, you have the best men who are fit to lead, who show boldness, speed, competence, and they seek to develop unity by making the truth openly discussed. And then your goal is to have them help to develop the quality of the people by helping to train them up, focusing on the men so those men can lead their homes. This is how we increase our reputations and increase the reputation of the church so that the testimony of the church is more powerful in the earth. This is a lesson about this. This is what we should do in our households. This is what we should do in our church. So that's the seventh thing. And we get to the conclusion. A warning not to exalt yourself. It's just told you about a bunch of things to do to get more power and a bunch of things to do to get more honor. So is this text saying, don't get honor and don't get power? No. It is saying, use lawful means. And if you think, if you think, but the lawful means are slow, maybe I could just be pragmatic. Remember, you don't know how the eagle works. You don't know how the serpent works. You don't know how ships work. You don't know how a man can gain traction in the heart of a woman. Don't be a harlot. Right? Remember that. Don't be pragmatic. Be holy unto God. Verse 32. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have devised evil, put your hand on your mouth. You find yourself getting frustrated with lawful authority, and so you start to exalt yourself. You start to make plans for the evil removal. Is it always evil to remove power? No. Is it always evil to resist with force a power? No. But when it's unjust, it's unjust. Carefully consider before you agitate or exalt yourself. Even when you have to remove a lawful power, there's a great danger in exalting yourself in the process. Do not take a lawful opportunity to try to go exalt yourself. Take the lawful opportunity to remove and wait to see what God does in terms of the power. Why? Verse 33. Because as the churning of milk produces butter. And the Hebrew word there is meats. Okay, it means to press. Okay, so as the pressing of milk produces butter and the pressing of the nose produces blood, so the pressing of wrath produces strife. Okay, so it's a pressing, pressing, pressing. The Hebrew word meets is the thing there all three times. So what's the point of each of those? So first, 
if you agitate against evil power or against good power, agitation changes things. Agitation changes things. It changes you because it makes you resentful and bitter if it's wrong. And it changes things around you by increasing other people's desire to remove that authority. If it's righteous, what's that going to result in? Be ready for this. It's going to result in blood. Agitation results in blood. The ringing of the nose produces blood. So the idea is agitation changes the state of things from milk to butter. It's going to change the state of things, and it produces blood. And agitation produces strife. When you push on milk, it creates butter. When you push on the nose, it creates blood. And when you push on wrath, it produces strife. Relationships will be destroyed. Peace will be removed. Blood will be spilled. Change will occur. If that change is not well planned out in a lawful way, by lawful means, to resist a tyranny that's worth losing those things over, there are almost always excuses to say this person's being tyrannical when they're in authority. And if that's the case, you need to consider, is the, ju- is, is the squeeze worth the juice? The juice worth the squeeze? I don't know. However the thing is, you know, you know the thing. You have to ask, is the cost worth it? Is it worth paying that cost to get the benefit? And what's the likelihood of that benefit? This is where just war theory comes in. You have to think about ends and means. And so Jesus talks about how a king who is being advanced upon by an army of 20,000, who has 10,000 soldiers, he has to decide whether to fight or whether to go out and negotiate. No king wants to negotiate. Every king wants to take. But sometimes you have to negotiate. And you've got to give something away to avoid a greater loss. When you have to think about the fact that there's evil that needs to be removed, remember, agitation changes things. It results in blood. And it produces strife. Sometimes it is worth that cost because blood is already being spilled. Strife is being generated. And you see that things are being changed in a way that's horrible. Sometimes you have to do that. But you have to realize that that's the cost. And so if you're going to take that risk, you have to count the cost to decide if it's worth going to war. And then you need to move boldly with speed and competence with numerous supporters of high quality in a unified way. These are principles of war. These are principles of wisdom for kings. Comments? Questions, objections, the voting members, and those with speaking rights. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to know how we ought to use the power that you give to us. We ask that you would increase our power, that you would increase our strength, that you'd help us to be unified and skillful, that you'd help us to be bold, that you would help us to improve our position and to develop resources. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.
Psalm 133. Please stand. A song of ascents of David. O truly it is very good and pleasant to behold when the brethren come together and dwell in unity. O it is like the precious oil poured out upon the head, which does run down from Aaron's beard even to his garments. Remember, oil is about anointing. Anointing is a symbol for power. The idea of officers for unity. Right? So we just talked about that a lot. Unity and how that relates to power. Hopefully that deepens the sense of why oil as a sign of strength gets poured on when somebody enters office. And the idea that unity is like that strength symbolized there in the anointing. Because unity brings strength even if you don't have a king. As the dew from Hermon descends upon Zion's mountain, for there the Lord his blessing gave, even eternal life. The dew which points to baptism, we as Christians, our anointing is our baptism. We're anointed by the Holy Spirit, and we are anointed symbolically with water. And so we have an anointing for strength. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is about the giving of gifts for power, for strength. And so that dew comes upon the church from above. There the Lord his blessing gives. It gives eternal life there. The church gives the word of truth and that word of truth causes eternal life. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It upholds the truth in the earth. Let's sing.